welcome to Lecture 6A of IT Service Quality Management. My name is Brenton Birchmore, and this gets us finally to the engine room of IT Service Management. We're talking about service management practices. So this is where we take care of the services that we deliver. It's where we manage all of the decisions necessary to make sure that the services are delivered in the way that they should be which is usually depending on what promises or commitments are made or what expectations exist as to how they should be delivered. So this is where we will find all of the details of what it takes to deliver those services reliably. But this isn't technical yet. This is relevant to any service. Much of this could and would even be applicable to non-IT services. It's also not a how-to structure. It's more of a checklist. It's more of a don't miss any of this kind of statement. And these aren't standards. They're not going to tell us the level of quality that we need to operate at. But it will tell us the decisions that we are required to make to ensure that what we deliver can be done acceptably. But it's not just about delivery. Although a lot of the practical discussions are about delivering IT services, it's also about delivering the value that those services are meant to deliver. So in that sense, it also covers things like the service catalogue, choices regarding which services we have based on which ones are valuable. It also covers things like design, covering elements of what a valuable service should look like. It also covers things like change control, changing to be more like what the customer requires or the value that's needed from these services. Now, one of the reasons this exists in ITIL 4 is because a big difference between an organization that has strong IT service management and one that struggles is a difference in thoroughness. It's quite often the fact that Organizations that struggle to meet all of their requirements are because something in the way they manage their services is missing. And that missing thing translates into a risk, which, when it manifests, is where their service delivery fails to meet standards and expectations. It's where customer satisfaction falls down. So ITIL 4 recognizes that a big part of poor quality ITSM is simply that important things are missing. Organizations like that might do good work. They may have good people, and they often use both of those to make up for the lack of thoroughness. ITIL 4 tells us that we shouldn't rely upon good people or good work. It shows us what thoroughness looks like. It shows us all of the things that we need to consider so that we're not adopting a risk-based IT service delivery approach. It helps us focus on what is needed, to find what is missing, and to make sure that we fix it and have those decisions made. Let's start with the first one, which talks about availability. Now, when we're talking about the availability of a service, we are talking about availability of what the service is intended to achieve but also, there is an element of the availability of the value that is meant to be derived from that service. So we cannot simply say that from the back-end perspective, all the lights are green, 
and therefore we assume that the value is being leveraged from the service at the other end. Service availability is about an absence of impact on the customer due to a lack or degradation or absence of some aspect of service delivery. So availability means that it's delivering its value. This means that availability has to be negotiated. There needs to be an agreement and an understanding of what availability is expected and what is committed to. So those need to be reasonable, they need to be feasible, and they need to be recorded and understood so that in managing availability, we have something to monitor. So we know what to compare results against. We're not simply waiting for the complaints, but we can see on an ongoing basis exactly what our availability is and compared to what it's supposed to be. So availability management includes all of those measurements, all of the systems and things necessary for us to know precisely what the availability levels currently are. Now there's usually a balancing act in managing availability because the two parameters that are most often talked about is the one that measures how often a service might fail, the mean time between failures, which is the statistic that says, well, how often does something fall over and go wrong? But the second is the mean time to restore the service. So how long does it take if something does fall over to bring it back to delivering its value? The reason both of these are valid and relevant is because both of them have an impact on the way in which or the extent to which the customer can draw value from the service. It might only fall over occasionally, but if it falls over for a very extended period of time, the end result is a significant impact on availability of that value to the customer. So we manage both things. Historically, we've done a lot of belt and braces approach of high reliability services to minimize the number of times when it might fall over. There is often, for many services, a balancing act because the more locked down we make a service to minimize its failure, the often the harder it is to then fix it and correct it and get it back up and running if it falls over. So one end of the success scale is a service that never falls over, has so many redundancies built in that the value never stops. At the other end of success is a service that might fall over at any point, but can recover so quickly that nobody notices and there is no apparent loss of value being delivered. We get to make those decisions, but we need to make those decisions. On a per service basis, on a per portfolio basis, we need to make sure that we are managing all of those decisions and that we are putting in place all of the technical, resource-driven, functional activities that are necessary to deliver on what we plan to do and how we plan to maintain availability. The second area to cover is business analysis. Now, at first glance, when looking at IT service delivery, it might be questioned of why are we going to consider business analysis in this. But if we think about the very origins of business analysis a few decades ago, it really began as a discipline that was aimed at largely defining specifications for technical products. So it was the process of specifying what technology it needed, what the bits and pieces needed to be, how it would work. This has become more holistic over time. And business analysis has evolved to be solution design and solution specification. So it's now no longer simply 
what does the technology need to have and how is it configured? It's now, how are we going to use it? What does the staff need to do differently? What policy and procedures do we need? What other changes towards infrastructure? All of the parameters that might be necessary to be decided, to be defined, to be configured and provided for a complete holistic solution to achieve the business benefits that an organization is looking for. And IT service delivery may well be an important part of all of that. But what this is telling us to do is to make sure we have the holistic perspective, that all aspects of the way in which that solution will yield benefits need to be decided upon and figured out. And when we are deciding what our IT service will look like, we do it as part of a larger solution with a holistic perspective. The business analysis is defining what the needs really are, and it's creating this tangible link between the expectations of what a customer thinks a particular service or solution will do for them, and defining that service in such a way that it's likely to actually do that, and then having a way of testing and checking that that's actually the case. And this is about reducing the risk of wastage and maximizing the return on investment that comes from investing in IT service solutions. Now, business analysis is a large discipline in and of itself. It's something that has extensive discussions that we could have to figure out all the different ways in which it can work. It's a specialized discipline with its own skill set, its own experience, with its own models of behavior. It uses universal modeling language to define things like use cases and visual representations of what is otherwise deeply technical and complicated ideas. So according to ITIL 4, IT services generally should only exist because they have been analyzed as being an appropriate business benefit, that they are fulfilling a certain need which itself has been analyzed and defined. And that analysis and definition of the need and the relationship between that need and this service is precisely what business analysis is meant to do. It helps us avoid developing and trying to leverage white elephant solutions or orphaned services that don't really have a need and don't really fit. It helps make sure that everything that we build and everything that we do has a purpose and has a benefit and therefore has value. This brings us to the end of Lecture 6A. Hello and welcome to Lecture 6B of IT Service Quality Management. We're going further into the service management practices of ITIL 4 and we're up to talking about capacity and performance management. Now the simplest definition of capacity management is do we have enough to meet demand? And demand is what is intrinsically decided by the customers, but also agreed upon by the provider. So there's an element of understanding what demand exists, what and how much of everything our customers want, and what of that we have chosen that we will try to meet. So capacity is managing the amount of any service or services. The extent to which those services can meet the needs, the demands, and the performance requirements 
of the customer. So it's about satisfying demand, especially immediate demand here and now, but future demand somewhat predictively, but also doing all of this in a cost-effective way, not losing sight of the return on investment. So it's also avoiding wastage. It's avoiding unnecessary or unutilized capacity that we shouldn't be investing in. Now, part of this is we need to define how we're going to measure capacity for any particular service or groups of services. Often from the customer perspective, what they can measure requires a number of services to work together to deliver a value that they can define and that they can understand and measure. That needs to then translate back to something that we can measure on perhaps a more separated basis, where individual services need to be monitored for their their contribution to the capacity. So those translations need to be understood, they need to be agreed upon, and they need to help describe what capacity means to each service so that we can then understand what capacity we have, understand the demands and any gaps and then work towards minimizing or avoiding those gaps. So we have to know enough about how the customer is using a service, how they are benefiting from it. And we have to know that from a business analysis point of view so that we can understand how future changes to the way a customer uses a service might impact its demand. We need to then be able to analyze current capacity, compare that against capacity requirements, do forecasting and resource planning because a lot of the services that we might be working with have lead times. They have prerequisites, things that will take time before they can increase the available capacity. And many of those decisions will need to be done in advance so the capacity never runs out and is always ahead of demand. But this also covers performance management, which is a measurement of is the service doing what it's supposed to do? Is it doing what it says on the tin? Is it doing what was agreed and expected? Is it performing precisely as it should? So whilst capacity is, do we have enough of it? Performance is, well, do we have enough of the right outcomes being delivered by a particular service? Is that service keeping its promises? Which, just like capacity management, we need to know what those promises are. They need to be defined. They need to be understood. So we need to be able to measure performance against some clear understandings, some definitions and some measurable outcomes so that that can be confirmed and checked on an ongoing basis proactively, once again, without waiting for a customer to tell us that a service is underperforming. The fourth practice is change control. So here we're talking about what we need to consider to make sure that anything that changes in or around our service delivery is done in a controlled and deliberate and planned manner. So Agile 4 reminds us that any change may have an impact in the way in which a service is delivered and therefore in the value that that service delivers. So change needs to consider the repercussions consider what will occur as a result of the change and make decisions about whatever else needs to be handled or done or changed to accommodate that and ensure that the right value is still being delivered. Essentially, ensuring that all of the other service management practices 
are still working effectively and aren't damaged by a controlled or uncontrolled change. Now, ITIL 4 doesn't specify what kind of change we're talking about. It could be any kind of change. And the way in which change occurs is dependent upon the organisation. But the way in which the change needs to be managed is what ITIL 4 is guiding us on. It does that by breaking down changes into three broad categories and gives us guidance on how we might deal with those changes based on what category they fall into. The first is standard changes. Now, standard changes have had all of their decisions made, and they happen pretty much the same way each time. They are low risk, and they've been authorised because all of the parameters surrounding that change have been determined, and they're locked in. So something that's constantly changing back and forwards or a change that is ongoing and recurring might be done as a standard change because once the decisions are all made, once all the contingencies and all of the repercussions are determined, that change can then be performed multiple times without needing to revisit that. So we don't repeat the risk assessment every time the change is made. We might repeat the risk assessment and should whenever the nature of that change is different. If we're modifying what that change looks like, then we will revisit how that impacts things. The second level of change that's talked about is normal change. Normal changes aren't that scary or dramatic, but they do require decision-making. They do require analysis. They need to be assessed. They need to be examined for their repercussions, for the impact, for the changes that they will subsequently trigger for whatever impact that might have in the delivery of value. So they're generally low risk, but they're things that still need a deliberate decision each time the change is made. But these are still planned. These are changes where we have a degree of control over the timing of the change. Importantly, that we have enough time to make the required decisions to assess and authorise that change. This isn't an emergency. We're able to control and pace ourselves for how that sort of normal change takes place. And that's essentially what makes it normal. The third level is an emergency change. And these are the kinds of changes that are usually corrective in nature. They're urgent. They're usually because something unexpected has happened and the change needs to be implemented as soon as possible. There might need to be a shortened version of assessment procedures because time is of the essence. We might not have the opportunity to go through the same lengthy procedures that we would with a normal change. So a shortened, more succinct kind of analysis and decision-making might be required. We might still be going through the same kinds of testing. We might still be looking at all of the same things. We will still need to look at all of the repercussions, but we will do that in a more urgent, more condensed process. We might do this by having fewer people involved. We might shortcut the steps needed to get the right expertise involved in an emergency change. We go straight to the experts or straight to the senior decision makers so that we can short circuit the communications necessary for the sharing of information and understanding so that we can still make a good decision, an informed decision about what needs to happen from this change, but we can do it immediately. The fifth service management practice is incident management. And this is at the very heart of what we know and think about as traditional help desk, traditional tech support. This is where something has gone wrong and steps need to be taken to restore that. 
So incident management is about managing the loss of enjoyment of a service. An incident is an unplanned interruption to the enjoyment of the value of a service. It's not doing what it should for us. We are not getting what we are supposed to get from this. It's unplanned and it's an interruption to the enjoyment of the service. Also defined as an interruption to the quality of the service. But we already know that a customer might perceive that something is not working right, but from the back end, it might look like it's all working fine. That's still an incident. Because from the customer's perspective, if they have lost the ability to enjoy the service, there is still something we need to do to take action to restore their enjoyment. So clearly, this is something that has an enormous impact on customer satisfaction. This is something that is directly impacting how they appreciate and value the services. This is not about what is the service capable of. This is about, well, is it doing it right now? Now, the important distinction about incident management is that it's about restoration of the customer's enjoyment of value. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean fixing the root cause of the problem that caused that interruption in the first place. It can include workarounds. It can include switching over to backups. It can include all sorts of activities that allow that customer to resume their satisfaction. It can include workarounds for known errors. It could include the engagement of backups and redundancy systems or alternative services. It could also include simply educating users on how to properly enjoy the value that may not have needed to have been interrupted. The interruption may have been triggered by them. We still need to take action to resolve their enjoyment of it. Some incidents will be complicated. They will be part of a larger failure behind the scenes and different stakeholders and different expertise might need to get involved. Incident management is still generally retaining a responsibility for all of the network of activities that might need to take place in order to get things back up and running in a satisfactory manner. It can also be incidents that are unplanned outages caused by suppliers. It might not be something that happens within our area of control, but it still might be within our area of responsibility if we are relying upon a supplier that provides a service or a component of a service and its outage or failure or some issue might cause that to become an incident for a customer. That's still an incident that we need to solve and work on. At the extreme end of incident management, we start looking at disaster recovery and then we tap into the service continuity management practice that we'll cover a little bit later. This brings us to the end of Lecture 6B. Hello and welcome to Lecture 6C of IT Service Quality Management. This is Brenton Birchmore. We are going through the service management practices and we're still in the first half. We're up to talking about number six, which is IT asset management. Now, this is something that a lot of people who are busy in IT will be very familiar with. This is to do with, especially, the tracking and recording and management of physical IT hardware. That is a part of it. It is usually a big part of it. 
This is where we manage all of the things like the desktops, the laptops, the servers, all of the routers, switches, hubs, and all of the various other pieces of equipment that have always been part of IT service delivery. But the way in which we manage them and what we manage them for is a little bit specific with ITIL 4. We're not just counting them and make sure they exist. We're also looking for cost-effective leverage. It's also about making sure that we're getting usability out of the assets that we have. So it's about checking for things like how much they're being utilized. It's about minimizing the wastage of assets by being aware of when assets are underutilized. It's about managing the cost of those assets, not just the cost of acquisition, not just the cost of maintaining them, but the cost of using and leveraging them and taking advantage of what they can do. All aspects of the cost of these IT assets is part of IT asset management. But the leverage of them is a very important aspect. We're talking about getting value for money out of the assets that we have. It's not really about choosing which assets, but it might be about choosing some specific details relating to assets that impact their ability to be leveraged and utilized. But asset management isn't just having them and making sure they do what they're supposed to do. It's the full life cycle, including the winding down, the disposal, the recovery, it's also all the things that will happen at the end of the life of any particular asset. What do we do with it then? So when we're talking about cost management, we're looking at the total cost of ownership of IT assets. What does it cost us to have them? What does it cost us to use them? And what will it cost us to retire them at the end? But it's not just physical hardware. Assets have stretched their definition beyond the things with the flashing lights. We're now also talking about additional services that might be important for the delivery of our services. It could include managed services, since now we also have infrastructure as a service. We might be renting equipment, but that's still an IT asset. It's a component that contributes to or is used in the creation and delivery of other IT services. That's the new definition of an IT asset. In some cases, it can relate to non-IT functions like buildings or facilities or the air conditioning that might be specifically designed to deal with certain equipment environments. It could include things like uninterrupted power supplies or other aspects that are necessary for the effective maintenance and leverage of other IT assets. Now, IT asset management relies on a lot of information. So there's a lot of information management that goes on. There's a lot of detail that needs to be recorded, kept up to date, and made accessible for the decisions that are necessary in dealing with assets that we have. Things like not just how many computers do we have of a certain kind, but what is their age, what is their capability, what version numbers, what current configurations do we have on them, these are details that will help us determine how we're going to properly leverage them. When we're dealing with cloud services, for example, we're dealing with all of the features that have been switched on, all of the add-ons, all of the plugins, all of the extra things that might have a cost associated with them, and managing whether or not those are being utilized, whether or not they're necessary, 
And the advantage of managed services and cloud services is that it might be easier to switch those other things on or off as we need them. But those decisions get made as part of the managing of that IT asset. Practice number seven is monitoring and event management. What we're talking about with events is a change of state. Something has changed, and we don't necessarily know in the beginning whether that's good or bad, whether it's planned or unplanned, but we need to make sure, we need to find out, we need to be clear on what, if any, action might be triggered as a result of an event. So that is event management. The way we know about what has happened and whether or not an event has occurred and what we need to do about it is by monitoring all the possible events so that we have the ability to know when an event has occurred that might be a trigger for an incident or for a trigger for any other kind of management activity that allows us to be in control. So what we choose to monitor is incredibly important in how well we can manage the events and how we respond to them. Monitoring is about observing all of the important configuration items and especially those that we know are likely to change or prone to change, or if they do change, there are significant consequences for them. We get to decide what we monitor, but the monitoring that we do needs to be adequate to give us the full empowerment for the decision-making necessary to respond to, respond to any event or change of state. So monitoring is knowing what just happened, and event management is deciding what we do about it. The important point here from ITIL 4 is that this is a proactive activity. This is something that we do deliberately. Event management, it is responsive, especially when it comes to unplanned events, but it is proactive in the sense that we will know about it at the earliest suitable opportunity, and we'll then have the opportunity to make decisions of how we respond next. So this does logically feed into things like incident management. It may be vital to be able to provide information to incident management to help them know what kind of interruption to service delivery has occurred and what might need to be done to work around it or restore it. Similarly, event management and monitoring will feed into things like design and change control. Often deliberate change has unintended consequences. Despite the effort that goes into managing control change effectively, unplanned change or events can still occur. And this is where our monitoring will catch that. So monitoring has the power and indeed the obligation to know about everything that has occurred, whether it is planned or unplanned. This usually involves a lot of data, it usually involves a lot of analysis, and a lot of this can and should be automated. Even some of the decision-making of how we respond to events can be programmed based on what we know about how they've happened in the past. But we need to be careful about automating too much of that decision-making because there are always going to be variables that need to be decided by individuals. We might even be doing monitoring of external parties, monitoring of our suppliers and what they do, so that if something happens or an event changes within what they provide to us, that we are aware of it as soon as or maybe even before they are. And we certainly need to be aware of event changes before our customers are aware of them. 
This leads to practice number eight, which is problem management, which is a big one. Problem management is the activities involved in responding to, reducing the effect of, or minimizing the likelihood of incidents. Remember that an incident is an unplanned interruption to the quality or value of a service. So problem management is dealing with all of the things that have caused incidents, are causing incidents right now, or might cause incidents in the future. It's about identifying the root cause of something and taking actions necessary to deal with that. And when we say deal with it, it could be repairing, it could be fixing, it could be replacing, or it could be using a known error with a workaround. You might have a problem that has been analysed, hasn't been solved yet, but an interim activity or method has been resolved and worked out that allows us to avoid it from causing further degradation to value in the future. It might stop it from being an incident or it might mitigate the impact of an incident whilst we wait for a more long-term solution or correction to that problem. So problems relate to incidents, but problems are separate. They don't always cause incidents. A problem in a primary service where a backup has taken up the load may not have any impact on customer enjoyment because the redundancies are working as intended. But we now have risks in play because we're now no longer operating on primary services. So we still have a problem, but it gets dealt with differently than an incident would. Problem management has three distinct phases. The first and perhaps obvious is problem identification figuring out what has actually occurred and what the reasons are. Problem control is about working on solutions. It's about fixing, it's about correcting, it's about documenting that for future use, or it's also documenting workarounds or known errors that will mitigate the impact of incidents. Workarounds and known errors are meant to be temporary, and so we have error control as the third step in problem management where we are constantly looking at things that might still be in a workaround or known error status, regularly reassess them, understanding how we are moving closer towards a permanent fix. Error control is about the reduction of known errors and the reduced likelihood of future errors. This can mean increasing reliability, it can mean proper documentation, it could even mean things like proper training or retraining, anything that is necessary or effective in reducing the likelihood of an incident in the future. But not all problems are solved within the confines of problem management. Some problems are too large and they need a much larger solution. They might need a redesign of a particular service. A known error workaround might do for now, but it might require a lot of resources, it might require a lot of work and activities, a redesign, a redeployment, it might require expertise and costs in order to have a long-term fix. Problem management is tracking that. Problem management is still owning responsibility for the fact that this permanent fix doesn't exist yet and it will provide input and feed into things like design decisions or controls or change that are necessary to ultimately fix it. And problem management will be testing that to ensure that whatever is meant to fix that problem actually has done that. 
So it will review solutions on a post-implementation basis to make sure that they're working, but they will also take input from customers to help ensure that what has been put in place is actually delivering the service quality and the value that's expected. Problem management often has the most human input because whilst procedures are often very effective as a starting point, if procedure was enough, it may have been dealt with under incident management. So problem management tends to have access to some of the more experienced or more knowledgeable or more well-trained staff. People who have a deeper understanding of the various systems involved to help them come up with the clever ideas that ultimately provide solutions. This is the end of Lecture 6C. Hello and welcome to Lecture 6D of IT Service Quality Management. We are talking about service management practices and we're into the second half of the list. We're up to practice nine, which is release management. Now the definition of release management is to ensure that any new or major changes to services are effectively available for use without undermining any other service or its value. And when we talk about changes to services, we might immediately think of change control. Change control is typically smaller events. Releases is when something more significant or larger in scale is introduced into a service environment or where changes to an existing service are significant, where it will change the way that service delivers its value or changes the value that that service delivers might change its features, might change its functionality, might change its capability or capacity. But those changes need to be managed because they can have a significant impact on other services around. So a release is considered to be a new version of something, and that could include the first version of something. And they can be very small, involving a small change to a small part of a small service, or they can be an entirely new service, or even a, a whole suite of services that get deployed together because the value that they deliver is collectively appreciated. So in ITIL 4, a release needs to be planned. And the obvious part of that planning is making sure that we have everything in place necessary for this new release, this new service or new version of a service to effectively and functionally do what it's supposed to do. But the planning also is involved in making sure we have all of the resources and all of the decisions made necessary for the changes that need to happen for that to become live. Also, release planning is all of the consequences, the repercussions, the flow-on effects, all of the things that can, should, or might happen as a result of this new thing that is being released. It includes a lot of the testing that needs to take place. So this is where we have our production environment separate from our test environment. But no matter how complete our test environment might be, it'll never completely replicate what's going to happen when something gets launched and released into an operational environment. So production environment deployment still needs to have an arrange of additional monitoring. And release planning will take care of that and making sure that we are watching for all of the appropriate things that 
we've decided we need to look at for the sensitive period of time immediately after release goes live. Some release planning figures out everything in advance and tries to release something that's fully working. Other forms of release planning will release in bits and pieces, gathering impact, learning how to improve, and then evolving a product. Others will deliberately release something knowing that it's not quite right and then conduct live testing. Now, all of these decisions will be made independently by the the business and the organization, depending on what's appropriate for the way they want these services to yield their value. So whether you're operating in an agile or DevOps environment, there's going to be impact on how those decisions are made. ITIL 4 doesn't specify. It just tells us that we need to have certain categories of decisions made. Whether it's waterfall or DevOps or Agile, we'll have a release plan. We'll have new or changes to the infrastructure. There will be new or changed software. There'll be documentation and training that's all specified and determined by release management. Then there will be deployment and release activities, including the analysis and testing after that, followed by a review of all of the information that we've learned through that process. Practice number 10 is the service catalog management. This is essentially a repository of all of the relevant information that needs to be maintained and made available pertaining to all of the services that we're providing. This is meant to be the definitive list and understanding of exactly what we have, what it does, what it requires, how it works. It is the central repository and authority of all up-to-date and useful information regarding all of the services that are being provided. It's to ensure that all stakeholders are able to work with a single common understanding of what each service is, does, and has. This way, different parts of the technical teams can work with and understand the same information that users, customers, financial perspectives, or sales perspectives are all going to be working from the same information. They might have different views. They might have different layers of access. They might look at different pieces of information. But there will be a consistency and a singular authority of what that information should be. It's where we have a single repository of information, including training documentation, including details about how a particular system should be used. It's so that we avoid the risk of having disparate information and disparate documentation. This addresses things like version control and document updating. But this might also mean that we have different perspectives based on our internal view of what the service catalogue has and contains and what the customer sees. Because what the customer perceives and wants to know is what's going to impact their decisions about what they do and don't want and the value they will or won't get from these services. So a customer review or customer perspective of the catalogue is always going to be different than the internal service delivery perspective. And this gives rise to the request catalogue, which is a list of all the things from the customer's perspective that they could have and enjoy. It's from the value perspective that helps with them deciding what to have and the purchase decisions about how they're going to get value out of certain services. This leads us into practice number 11, which is service configuration management. 
So if the catalogue is a repository of all of the information pertaining to services, the management of the configuration and the changes to those configurations is part of service configuration management. This is the practice that ensures that all of the information is reliable. This is about the activities relating to keeping those records up to date. It's specifically about the configuration items. The details that define how a service functions. Configuration items being any component, any piece of information that needs to be managed in order for an IT service to deliver its value. Many organizations struggle with keeping their configuration management database up to date. They struggle with the correct processes that make sure that all of the information is updated as and when it actually changes. To deal with or minimize the ad hoc impact of changes made in an emergency or in a relaxed manner that don't then translate into record updating in configuration management. ITIL 4 tells us that without a proper configuration management process, without a practice that makes that important and ensures that there's a certain standards achieved, that we are likely to be using old, out-of-date or incorrect information in the decisions that we make. And this will undermine our ability to perform many of the other service management practices. But ITIL 4 also tells us that it's not just about recording everything. It's not just about having every possible piece of information. Capturing, recording, and keeping information up to date has a cost overhead. It needs to be balanced against the value and usefulness of that information. So it measures the value that's obtained by interacting with that configuration management system. This is often difficult because the value that we get out of having effective configuration management is usually the absence of other cost. There is not always an obvious attributable outcome that you can point to and say, that's because we have great configuration management. Usually it's the other way around. It's something you can point to and say, that's because we don't have effective configuration management. This is one of the reasons why it can be difficult to make proper investment and adhere to proper procedures and standards regarding configuration management. And all the best tools and all the best processes are only as good as the humans who work with them and adhere to them. And this is why automation of configuration management is usually one of the most effective ways of improving the reliability and integrity of configuration management databases and their ability to provide value to decisions that need to be made. This brings us to the end of Lecture 6D. Hello and welcome to Lecture 6E of IT Service Quality Management. We're working our way through the list of service management practices and we're about to talk about service continuity management, which is point 12. Now this is also known by, in the past, as disaster recovery. And it really is about disasters. The phrase service continuity brings the emphasis about let's have as much continuity to the enjoyment of the value of the services as possible. But it is really meant to be in the event of a major disaster occurring. 
So this is different from incident management, where the impact of some kind of interruption to enjoyment is relatively minor. A disaster is where the business impact is sufficient that it's meant to trigger a whole different level of activity, response, and therefore investment. Now, we all get to decide what a disaster looks like, and this would sometimes be done in consultation with customers. And the difference is really one of scale. It's the scale of the consequences of the situation that has arisen. Once we define something as a disaster, then we have a set of responses that are out of the ordinary because a disaster is meant to be a rare occurrence. And so our ability to throw in a certain level of effort and activity and resources should be something that is an aberration, not business as usual. This is based on an analysis of the business impact of certain situations arising. It's also usually managed on an agreed basis. It might be part of service level agreements and documentations and written promises and undertakings that say, well, if this happens, we agree that it would be a disaster and we therefore agree that we would implement service continuity activities with all of the relevant costs and urgency that they would normally involve. So under ITIL 4, it doesn't really matter what kind of disaster we're talking about or where it's come from, why it has occurred. What ITIL 4 tells us is we need certain elements to our response strategy. We need agreements with what is an acceptable level of outage. What are the recovery time objectives? So it needs to be understood what is the maximum acceptable period of time that this disruption can be allowed to continue. And that will shape the response to that. It'll shape what kind of actions and what kind of investment needs to be applied to make sure it does not exceed that. These comprise a disaster recovery plan. A bunch of decisions that get made in the calm moments without a disaster so that when a disaster arises, we can very quickly act upon decisions that have already been made. The value of this is it short circuits the response time necessary to get known restorative or known responses in play and in motion as soon as possible without losing time on decision making because that's already been done. The more our services are reliant upon external providers or a complicated web of internal and external services, the more that disaster recovery needs to deal with different kinds of contingencies. We might have policies such as twin suppliers for certain services, the ability to immediately switch over and gain services from somewhere else. This is akin to the having multiple versions of hardware or having things that can be moved into place and take over from the role of something else. Disaster recovery plans might also have multiple ways to get the right people involved, ways in which expertise can be brought to bear in an emergency using perhaps novel or out-of-the-ordinary methods. When we get to practice 13, we're talking about service design. This includes all of the decisions necessary to create and deliver an effective service. So it's the design decisions that result in products and services that are meeting their requirements, they're fit for purpose. 
they're fit for use. They're able to be leveraged. The value can be drawn out from those services. That they are the right services, suitable for delivering the kinds of value that there is demand for. The right kind of services to deliver the kind of value that the organization wants to deliver, based on strategic planning and decision making. It's services that have been designed with the input of business analysis, ensuring that they are able to deliver value that meets a need. It's also taking into account release management, making sure that the services that are designed are able to work within the environment and the confines of other existing services. It's making sure that services that are designed are value for money, that there's a return on investment, that there's a balance between the value that those services can offer and the cost of actually deploying them. So it's suitability, it's cost-effectiveness, and it's the role that those services play in the larger catalogue and portfolios. It's ensuring that we listen to the customer and have customer-centric decision-making in the design of services. It's being able to consider all of the parameters that relate to a service, not just the obvious ones. It's taking into consideration all of the subtle, hidden, unusual elements or aspects of a service and thinking through the permutations and the repercussions of all of those decisions, looking after the little things because they're the ones that are more likely to bite us later if we don't take them into account. It's also about leveraging the lessons learned, understanding what we've learned from releases that have gone on to date, what we've learned from things like capacity management or from business analysis, what we've learned from change control, what we've learned from problem management, or any other service management practice that should be informing what we do next and how we do it. It also might bring in cost efficiency to do with standardization of service design, making sure that the services we deliver are all effectively able to leverage infrastructure and work with the systems such as our configuration management that needs to provide information across all services. Service design decisions also need to work with staff, expertise, human resources to make sure that we know everything we need to know in how to manage and leverage that service. This is a very holistic perspective. It's not entirely focused on the service that's being designed. It's the role that that service plays in the larger scheme of things. But it's also taking advantage of innovation. It's taking advantage of design thinking. It's taking advantage of clever interactions. It's capturing those little possibilities, those ideas and innovations, and allowing having a method of those to feed back into the bigger decisions about future service design. It might also involve testing of these ideas, prototyping, trials, proof of concepts, that test some of the more unpredictable ideas and gauge results and let that feedback into future service design. It even includes things like user experience design, where we're making design decisions above and beyond simple features and functionality and looking into a holistic perspective of every way in which the customer will interact with that 
and all of the individual parameters which when taken together ultimately compile into a complete user experience everything matters in the way in which a customer will interact with the service experience it and therefore value it when we get down to practice 14 we finally arrived at what many people are familiar with and that is the service desk the service desk is meant to provide a single or unified point of contact and accountability for the interactions with users and customers in particular relating to incident resolution or service requests from users and customers it's a single point of focus and control and flow of information and communications relating to the customers enjoyment and leverage of the value from the IT services it is servicing the customer and servicing the customer's enjoyment of the service. So it is a central point of tracking and reporting errors, problems, disappointments, failures, outage, queries, questions, uncertainties, anything that is necessary to help the customer enjoy their service. Because a service desk provides a focal point of communications with customers and users, it also provides an insulator from other aspects of the organization that need not or should not be burdened with the requirements of communicating with users. But it's also responsible for ensuring that the proper flow of information is leveraged and occurring throughout the organization so that users have the right access to the right information, so that technicians or people behind the scenes have access to the right users or the right user information. So because Helpdesk has a fundamental obligation to customer satisfaction, they have an obligation to the tracking and reporting and following up of everything that might be affecting customer satisfaction. And in simple terms, this might include a ticket tracking system, but it will also include all of the plans and policies and decisions for the escalation of issues, for the tracking of issues as they flow through any of the other service management practices. But because it's largely focused on communications first, it's going to be involving a lot of the different ways in which users and customers can interact with the service provider. Exactly how that works will depend upon the organization itself. But the important thing is that we have this obligation and this focal point for the accountability of customer satisfaction for everything relating to the service delivery. This brings us to the end of Lecture 6E. Hello there and welcome to Lecture 6F of IT Service Quality Management. It's Britton Birchmore again. We are up to the final discussion regarding service management practices. We're up to practice number 15, and this is talking about service level management. Now, we've already spoken about capacity and performance management when we talked about it in practice three. In performance management, we were asking the question of, is the service doing what it should, and is it doing enough of what it should? In service level management, we want to know whether or not it's doing it well enough. It's a quality question. Now, how we measure that quality, there's a variety of ways, and it's up to us. 
But we need to make those decisions to define what quality or what a level of quality looks like and is expected for each service and for all services. So service level management is understanding what the expectations are in terms of service quality level, having all the monitoring in place that lets us know when we are or are not reaching it, and triggering responses when it's not. So the starting point with service level management is the metrics. And these metrics, they will come from strategic-based decisions within the organization to say, well, this is the service quality that we're aiming for. But it'll also be echoed or have input from customer expectations. There is a symbiotic relationship in service level design that says, well, we want to meet these service levels because that's what our customers expect, want, and pay for. This is what leads to service level agreements, which are fairly important documents that define an important aspect of the relationship between the provider and the customer in terms of what level of quality is undertaken by the provider that says we promise to meet these service level minimums. So usually because there's an important requirement for the customer to make sure they get those and there's often financial or other penalties against the provider when they don't meet those requirements, there's a lot of emphasis and a lot of importance on monitoring and tracking when, if and how those service levels are being met or not. Some of the most common and most familiar forms of metric for service level is uptime or what percentage of the time is a service available for. But this is broadened now to have a whole range of different ways in which we can measure service quality. When we remember and understand that service value is what the customer is actually paying for, we can define service quality and service levels in terms of how and how well they deliver that value to the customer. This also means that service level agreements and the way they work and the way they impact service delivery need to have a business context to them. And there often needs to be a flexibility because what's required of an organization at one time might be different from another time. There might be highly sensitive parts of a year or parts of an operating cycle where certain requirements are higher. And service level agreements that have the flexibility to cater more specifically, more uniquely, or to tailor to the way in which certain customers need to leverage their value are going to create differentiators for service providers to be able to not only specify, but to be able to promise and to be able to ensure that they deliver on those highly tailored or specific promises and agreements. So service level performance and service level agreement management is an indicator of customer satisfaction, but it's not the final word. Customers will base their satisfaction on a many other parameters that we also need to be able to listen to. Service level management includes not just feeding information from all of the monitoring and all of the reporting about performance and delivery and outcomes, but also from customer engagement, customer surveys, feedback, both deliberate and unsolicited. So there are operational metrics and there are business metrics that all feed together to enable the service delivery provider to know what their customer base is expecting of them, what promises are valued, 
what promises they are making and what promises they are keeping and what they need to do more, better or differently to exceed and expand on those outcomes. Moving on to practice 16, we're talking about service request management. And this is one of those more obscure ways in which an IT service provider can satisfy customer requirements. Service requests are specific things that the customer wants to have happen. And it's generally something that we already know as a provider they should be allowed to ask for. It's something that's defined in a way that it's normally something that we would provide. Could be a user request, could be a customer request, or it could come from a representative of the two. So the practice of managing these service requests is the practice of ensuring that the individual ad hoc requests or changes or new things or different things, the permutations that could exist in the way in which the customer uses or leverages the service, that those are addressed to a certain standard and in a certain way. It's a big part of things like change control. It feeds into and works alongside all of the change control processes. It might also work closely with incident management because a perceived interruption to the service or to the enjoyment of the service may be caused by some kind of fault or it may be caused by something in the way the customer is attempting to leverage that value. That might result in a service request that changes some aspect of how that customer engages. And service request management is required to ensure that that request is suitably fulfilled. But service requests aren't meant to be full of bizarre and unusual requirements. We want these to be standardized and easy to process as much as possible. We want them to be familiar. We want them to be pre-approved. We want them to be pre-assessed, a bit like standard changes in change control. Service request management also serves as an opportunity to learn more about the ways in which the customers are or want to enjoy their services. It provides a window into understanding new needs, new demand requirements, or things that will enable the service provider to enhance the future of their service delivery and its value. Recurring requests might find their way into the next service design so that they become a normal part of service delivery and therefore no longer need to be asked for. Now we're finally at practice 17, the final in the service management practices, which is service validation and testing. Now let's start by first talking about the design discussion that we had before, which is where all the decisions get made about what that new service needs to be. A testing plan may be designed at the same time, but the application of that testing to validate and determine that any particular service does everything that's expected of it and that it's meeting all of its requirements and that there are no surprises, that is part of the validation and testing practice. This takes time, this takes effort, this requires the application of resources. Things need to be done and they need to be done well and they need to be done thoroughly. So a test strategy will define the, the overall approach to testing. But the practice says that this is how we go about it. This is what we record. This is the extent to which we apply 
certain tests or check for certain parameters or outcomes. And some of the information that will come out of that testing may feed back into a redesign or alterations or differences that need to manifest in the way it's delivered or the way in which it gets released. Information out of testing might feed back into the release plan. It might feed back into other aspects of the ongoing manage of that service. It might feed back and inform future incident management for that service. It'll certainly help populate service catalog and service configuration management. And it will ultimately feed into the decision of at what point that service will be allowed to be accessed by the customer. But testing isn't just about testing the new. Testing is also about testing whether or not everything else that used to be working is still working, especially things that are likely to be interacting with this new service. Testing must include whether or not anything else has been unduly affected. Testing might include performance and capacity tests at unusual load levels. We're not just testing for what happens when it's light and easy, but what happens when it's under full demand. There might be a need to test for certain specific legal compliance or for operational compliance. There might be a need to test for warranty purposes because if a service doesn't meet warranty requirements, it may have a financial impact on the provider. This is especially relevant when testing its ability to perform under service level agreements. And then there's also the user acceptance test. So as much of all the testing might be done internally to say, we think it's ready to go, there's usually a degree of user testing where the users get involved and interact with the service and confirm from their perspective whether or not it's doing what they expected. This helps avoid problems that arise purely from a difference in perspective from ultimately affecting the ability of that service to deliver value. This brings us to the end of Lecture 6F and finally to the end of Service Management Practices. Hello and welcome to Lecture 6G of MGI 515, IT Service Quality Management. It's Brenton Birchmore here. We are going to have a brief chat about technical management practices. Now, the technical management practices, there are only three, and they are highly technical. They focus on the kinds of decision-making that are specifically related to activities that are technical in nature that are necessary to support most IT service delivery. They're still broad, but they do cover the kinds of peculiarities and deal with the kinds of particular problems or challenges that certain technical activities require within IT service delivery. They are a little bit more prescriptive, they are a little bit more specific, and perhaps go into a little bit more detail in some ways in how these decisions need to be made. The first of these is deployment management. And it's worth pointing out that deployment management is kind of like the technical component of release management. So in practice nine of service management practices, we talked about release management and the processes or the things we need to take into account when new services are deployed. Now, when it comes to IT services, deploying new services often requires deploying new hardware, 
new software, or new processes relating to those. And part of the reason why ITIL 4 covers this as its own practice is that there are some fundamentally different ways of going about deploying these kinds of technical components. And ITIL 4 gives us a few examples. They talk about phased deployment, breaking up deployment in section by section, uh, area by area, service by service, or component by component on a repetitive basis until it's all done. Or perhaps continuous delivery, where components or elements of different services are built, tested, deployed bit by bit as they become available. There's the Big Bang deployment, which is where a large amount of new services and new equipment might be deployed all at once. And then there's the pool deployment, where things are made available, but the deployment of them might be triggered by a request or a requirement from the customer or the user. Now, the important part of addressing all of these is that we need to proactively make decisions about what kinds of delivery or what kinds of deployment is required for certain services and for the components they need. It's essentially telling us that we need to make these decisions deliberately and carefully depending on the requirements of the service we're deploying. But although most of this activity might be part of release management, it's still specific to the way in which the technology needs us to make our decisions. It might also have specific resources, it'll have specific expertise involved, and it might be using specific project management methodology, depending on what's being deployed. It might need to work more closely with suppliers. And this is especially true when we're talking about managed services, if those managed service elements are being outsourced from a major cloud provider. It also provides for a fairly tight link back to service configuration management because a lot of the technical configuration information is going to come out of the deployment management processes. The second technical management practice talks about infrastructure and platform management. And this is the underlying resources that many other services and technologies are built upon. And this could be in-house hardware, it could be physical infrastructure, or it could be outsourced cloud services that are tapped into. It's often things like servers, storage networks, operating systems, core software, anything that is required and used by the organization to deploy and deliver services and their value. It's things that are leveraged typically by multiple services or multiple components of services. Infrastructure is both something that other things are built upon and usually multiple different things are built upon. Even when you have managed services where each individual component of managed service might be provisioned separately depending on the service it supports, there is still the need to manage an overall relationship covering all of the managed services that are provided of a similar type. This is what would fall under infrastructure management. And some infrastructure has a long lead time. If we're talking about hardware, software, and physical systems, or we're talking about large proprietary systems, these might take quite a bit of time to acquire, configure, and deploy. Or they might take time to scale up. The long-term planning for these is something that the infrastructure and platform management practice will handle in consultation 
with practices like service design, business analysis, and even the general management practices of things like portfolio management and continual improvement. Infrastructure management needs to be a few steps ahead of what's required to allow these lead times to be dealt with without them causing delays in the delivery and provisioning of services. The third technical management practice, perhaps unsurprisingly, is software development and management. And this is, well, everything that sits on top of the operating systems. This is often the most complex component of technical management practices because this is where it has the most subjective input from different stakeholders. Software development and management is measured by its capability, functionality, usability, and the overall user experience. And it is closest to the point at which value is realized and measured. This makes software development one of the most complex and one of the most contested elements of value and deployment. Because it's an area that has the greatest opportunity for disagreement, for subjective analysis, or for misunderstandings, or for differences between initial expectations and ultimate outcomes. The fact that these challenges exist, the fact that it's so much more difficult to get software working exactly as everyone expected, is one of the reasons why ITIL4 says that this is a management practice that needs to be managed in its own right. It needs careful decision-making. It needs to work with all of the other practices that exist, but it needs to be managed with its own set of priorities, outcomes, goals, and it needs to focus on the fact that its primary goal is on the simple side of things to procure, deploy, deliver, create software, but on the complex side of things is to make sure that we minimize all of those opportunities for getting the wrong result. So whether we're building software internally, whether we're building it using agile methods or waterfall or something else, or whether we're having software made for us by another party, or we're buying something off the shelf and tailoring it and modifying it, or perhaps we're just getting software as a service. The entire process of deciding, procuring, managing, and ensuring that the outcomes are delivered effectively is what the software development and management practice is all about. This brings us to the end of Lecture 6G.